You're listening to the Better Than Fiction Bible Podcast. I'm Gandalf. I'm Matt. And I'm Nathan Van Horn. The Bible is the most read book ever, but for many, it is merely fiction. Join our conversation as we connect the dots to reveal that the story of the Bible is not only true, it's better than fiction. To learn more about the show, visit us online at betterthanfictionbiblepodcast.com. Welcome, listeners, to episode 16 of the Better Than Fiction Bible Podcast. Just a quick note, if for whatever reason this is the first episode that you're listening to this show, you probably are going to want to listen to last week's episode. That was episode 15, O Adam, Where Art Thou? We don't normally do this, but we're going to lean heavily on last week's episode. So it's almost prerequisite knowledge to listen to that one first. So if you're just coming in, welcome. Probably want to go back to last week. For everyone else, thank you for joining us. And as always, I want to remind you that if you like, share, subscribe, and even a written review of this podcast on whatever platform you're listening on, that really helps us continue to grow the audience and satisfy the almighty algorithm and we be, you know, blessed in its sight and we can continue (laughs) to grow and reach more and more people. Yeah. Hey, you know, I've gotten some feedback from some people, uh, who've just discovered the podcast and they're binge listening. Uh, I talked to somebody last week who like listened to the whole thing in a week. So, Oh my goodness. Yeah. So I cool. can't even Welcome. get my, I can't, I can't get my wife to do that. <laughs> oh, well we got, we got Matt's wife on board. Now we just got to eat true. your wife and then that's we'll true. have the, we'll have the whole set. One guy said like right before he goes to bed, he lays down, he just starts the podcast and uses it to, you know, as he's laying in bed right before he goes to sleep. So however you listen to it, thank you. <laughs> That's I don't know how to take that, but yeah, okay. Not I, was, I was about to say, mo- most people listen to me right before they go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> I think he meant it as clearing his mind or a time that he was really uh, receptive, not necessarily like, hey, put me to sleep. But I don't know. Every Sunday morning I look out there and somebody somebody's dozing off. It, it happens. So I'm not offended. Mm. Well, Matt, whether or not that's what he meant by it, that's uh, that's how we're going to interpret it, because what what is presented is not always the same as how we interpret it. Mm, ah, that's one yeah, of those there we go. Van Horn transitions. Yes, that we come that's good to expect. Yes. And that transition will make more sense after we read the text. Uh, yeah. And that's that's something we introduced last week. And that's why we wanted to have a separate episode for this week. And last week's episode, we we invited the listener to consider What's going on in Genesis 3? Uh, in Genesis 3, you know, you have the first sin within God's good created order. This is introducing the knowledge of evil to mankind. And then you have God showing up. And on the basis of an assumption of what God will do or how God will respond, mankind tries to cover themselves and they hide. Um and because of this, I think we have a very real tendency to see God as in, almost inherently angry towards sinful humanity. In fact, I, I would ask all of our listeners to pause just for a moment before we even read the text and read, uh, pause your podcast and read Genesis 3, uh, 8 through, let's say, through 21. And what, if you had to describe God in one word, how does he come off? To you, and I think for many people, God comes off as angry. Yeah, 
Yeah, that's absolutely how I would read this. Because I mean, he it seems like he's he's really doling out the punishment here. Uh, and and I I think fundamentally, when a lot of people uh, come to the Bible, uh, they they fundamentally see themselves responding to an angry God. That might be a flattering way to say it. Some might even say it in less flattering ways about God. Oh yeah. In fact, uh, Richard Dawkins has his famous quote on this in his book, The God Delusion. Um, anyway, it's, according to Richard Dawkins, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous. He's better, and... than, he's better than fiction. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, than... I interrupted. Yeah, I interrupted. Yeah, yeah. That's funny. Okay. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. But what do you really think, Dr. Dawkins? (laughs) I was just about to say, like, wow, tell us how you really feel. The world's most famous... Famous atheist in our day. Yeah, we're not going to get anywhere if you keep holding back. Um, right. <laughs> um, but hey, as, as, I, I, I know people that, that buy into this, is that when they read the Old Testament, and they will they can take you to, to texts to show you and say, look, this is pestilential, this is bloodthirsty, this is homophobic, this is racist, this is infanticidal, this is vindictive. But... Our contention is is that maybe if you take a more sweeping approach to the scripture as opposed to proof texting, you mean if you read it as a story, you read it as a story, maybe those gotcha texts that you're going to and snipping the video, so to speak, so that the text says exactly what we want it to say, because maybe we want to be mad at God, maybe, is maybe it doesn't communicate what we think it communicates. In fact, this is an interesting thing. Man, someone should have a podcast about that. Yeah, somebody should. So when we think about Genesis 3, we've said most of us think, all right, God's angry here. Even though the text does not mention anything to that effect. The text doesn't mention anything about anger in Genesis 3. And what's even more interesting, I want to ask you guys a question. Where is the first time in the Bible that we're told that God gets angry? Uh, well, I wanted to say, at first I was going to say the flood, but I don't think it says angry. It says I, he was grieved. It says he was right? deeply grieved, yeah. He was deeply grieved, and then he regretted making man. So clearly that God gets angry in the Bible. It's in there. But that whole flood story, like, which seems like really big, like, hey, I just wiped everybody out. His motivation, according to the text, is not anger, but rather Isn't that interesting? grief. Mm. Because the world had become something he had not intended it to be. So, so what's the first occurrence of anger then? The first occurrence of anger is God and Moses... At the burning bush. In fact, so it's not only is it not in Genesis three, it's not in Genesis at all. Yes. Uh, so, the listener, please understand this, because for those of us who think 
Man, God's just so ticked off at me. God is so angry with humanity. From Genesis 3 forward, since the fall, God has just been so ticked. Well, you have to go through 4,000 years of narrative history in the Bible if we take the, on the, the on genealogies the most, literal. Yeah, on the most literalistic reading on the assumption that all of our genealogies are Correct. exhaustive. If you use that, you have to go through 4,000 years of human history, including a flood scene and a scene where God confuses all the languages to get to the place in the story where the text actually says God was angry. Yeah, and, and what, what, what we're not saying, we're not saying God's not angered by sin. We're not saying it's inherently wrong for God to be angry. God is the only, as we said last week, God is the only completely just and righteous character in the biblical story. But it is interesting that you don't have God's anger explicitly mentioned until Exodus. I think that's fascinating. Uh, you know, Matt, you and I were talking, and it's, uh, you know, I mentioned the verse in James, uh, man's anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Uh, and I said, is it possible that the inverse is true, that God's uh, righteousness does not inherently have to involve his anger? And I, I think that matters not for not always for what we read in the text, but how we read the text when we're lacking those direct incentives. Because, you know, uh, one of the things we say within Christianity, and, and, and let's we'll take Christianity off the second. What's God's ultimate response to sin? Is it punishment or is it Jesus? Right? Sure. Um, and uh, I, I would say, let's go pre-New Testament. It's interesting for me that one of the most common descriptors of God, who's given, you know, reason after reason after reason ad infinitum to be angry, if that's his, you know, inclination, his predisposition, uh, despite all the reasons God's given to be angry with those who are not his people and with those who are his people and should know better, God is constantly described as slow to anger. In fact, I love in Hebrew, that's literally long of nostrils. Um, the language in Hebrew for when God plagues or, you know, punishes is often that God is blowing or, or you know, it's using the imagery of sneezing. God breathes in a whole lot of irritants before he sneezes or blows anything out. Mm. Um, and, and it's interesting to me that we read this pivotal uh, passage in Scripture, the default tone with which most people understand God to be speaking is anger, even though not only is it not mentioned in this text, as you said, it's not mentioned until Exodus. So Gandalf, why don't we begin in verse 8, but we're going to talk specifically about verses 14 through 21. And now that our listeners have heard that, hey, maybe this tone is not what I thought it was. Uh, maybe we can listen with some some fresh ears. Okay, so I'll start in eight. verse 8. Mm -hmm. And as a reminder to the listener, as always, we're reading in the ESV version of the Bible. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the sound I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? 
The man said, The woman whom you gave me to be with, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. She shall, or he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain shall you eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall it, sh it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall remain. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Thank you, Gandalf. So today, now that we've read this, what we're not going to do is we're going to come back next week and look at the content, especially of Genesis 3.15, which you probably, some of you already know, is the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel. We're just talking about the tone this week, and we're going to come back and pick more of this apart as we go forward. But we're looking at how do we hear this, and part of how we hear this is determined by the tenses, the verb tenses. So Nathan, why don't you help us see a few things that may not be that obvious to us? Because when most of us, we bring a preconceived notion to this story. Oh, this is the part where God brings the hammer down. This is going to the principal's office. This is when God starts pulling out the belt and takes him to the woodshed. And maybe that's not the best description of what's taking place here. What are things that in the text that indicate perhaps maybe that doesn't capture the full picture? Yeah, one of the things I would notice is, you know, we've put several... Uh, We've dedicated several minutes of podcasts to talking about who the serpent figure is, right? And entertaining the possibility, not not with certainty, but the possibility that this may be uh, the serpent, the Satan's inciting act of rebellion. Uh, that this may be the casting down. And by the way, just to just say one thing on that, Nathan, is I know we're saying in the that we can't know for certain. But one of the things that we can say, this is the first act of rebellion that is recorded mentioned. In yeah, recorded in Scripture. So it uh, does seem logical to think, hey, if this is the first act recorded, maybe this again, is the first act. Yeah, if, if you're on the Bible, I mean, if you're on an island reading the Bible uh, in isolation with no preconceived notions— this is the first rebellion that you're considering within the story as you're reading it. And again, as we mentioned in previous episodes, if it happened before this, why is the serpent still in the garden? So this is what you would believe if you're on an island and a Bible washed up, and you're like, oh my gosh, it makes so much sense. And then a copy of Milton's Paradise Lost you know, rolls up, and you're like, oh my gosh, I was wrong. 
<laughs> oh no, <laughs> this messes up everything. But but here's my point, Matt. Um, I think one of the reasons that we lean toward anger is because the first person that God talks to when He's doling out the consequences in the serpent uh, is yeah. the serpent. Um, and uh, what's interesting for me is that the serpent only receives judgment in this passage with no follow-up. In, in other words, when the story moves forward, the serpent is no longer an active character. Isn't that interesting? Mm. But within the context of these verses, he speaks to the serpent, then he speaks to the woman, and then he speaks to the man. And after that, the reason we stopped at uh, verse 21 today before God enacts the punishment by putting them out of the garden in verses 22 through 24, God demonstrates compassion. Uh, he, you know, in verse 21, it says, The Lord God made for Adam and, his, and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Their initial response to their own sin when their eyes are open is to cover themselves and hide. God brings all things out into the open. Uh, he doesn't. He doesn't pretend that there are no consequences. He told Adam, and and by the way, he told Adam beforehand that there would be consequences. It's not something he saved sure. for after, um, but before he enacts any of the consequences on his end, he gives an an act. Uh, he gives an expression of compassion. He gives them a better covering. In fact, many have heard, you know, that it's at least implied in this verse that since he gives them uh, garments not of leaves but of skins that you have the first implicit reference to sacrifice that an something gave its life to provide them with a more substantial covering for their sin that to me says maybe there is more compassion in God's dealing with humanity even or perhaps especially when humanity has fallen short of its created purpose and calling another thing that's interesting for me and Matt this is something that we've talked about is it's interesting is how often in these verses you see uh, uh, passive participles. I know yeah. everyone gets the everyone gets the feels when you talk about grammar, um, <laughs> but, but uh, it is know. it is surprising because it's not the way we read it or hear it in English. And I know when I made this discovery, it was one of those things that ooh that gives me pause. That's not what I thought was happening. Yeah, but uh, so it's it, he doesn't say to Adam. Uh, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. I'm going to curse everything. No, he says cursed is the ground because of you. he doesn't say I'm cursing the ground. He say he says cursed is the ground because of you. It's passive voice. That's it. Uh, the consequences of your sin are much bigger than you could have envisioned, but it's something you've set in motion. Uh, whether or not it's something uh, that I... Does that make sense? Yeah, it's not like, Adam, I'm doing this. It's, Adam, you have done this. Congratulations. You played yourself. Uh, yeah, there it is. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, again, it's... One of the things we see in this passage that I would say, because we're going to talk about this so many times as we progress in the podcast, is that the consequence, uh, you know, the Bible begins with God's good creation, not just what it is, but how it functions. And the consequence of sin will often look like the reverse of creation. It will look like anti-creation. Mm -hmm. So for the woman, look, what's the first command to mankind? Be fruitful even, and multiply. Yeah, even before the command to eat of the tree, the first command is to be fruitful and multiply. God wants them to multiply. So what's an unintended, unforeseen consequence of their sin? Suddenly, this thing that God blessed 
um, becomes what? For the woman, painful. I will multiply your pain in childbearing, and in pain you shall bring forth children. To the man, he was created to be the tender and the extender of Eden. Correct? Mm. And suddenly, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. Uh, notably, the field rather than the garden. Um, yes, it, it, uh, the garden, by the way, which has trees, think perennial. Like, man, you're going to have to work hard. You're going to have to work hard to get this. Um, by, so now it's by the sweat of your face, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and now you're going to, re- again, we talked about, I think this is so interesting in 19. I think, Matt, you're the one who pointed this out to me forever ago. Um, but uh, God makes man from the dust of the ground, uh, puts him in the garden, but now man is going to return to what? To dust outside of the garden. He's going to return to dust outside of the garden. That's it. Right. We focus on the fact that that we focus on the fact that that connotes death. We sometimes overlook, or and I certainly did for a long time, that it's death precisely because it's outside of the garden. We're back I'm sending it's you an, back to where you were before I. That's it. Here. It's anti-creation. It's 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 the consequence of taking God out of the equation, which is what all sin involves. Um, but you see God dealing with this. And my point is it's not an angry tirade as we're tempted to read it. Yes. God speaks directly. Yes. You have God taking agency, uh, saying, I will put, uh, enmity between you and the man to the serpent. Yes. You have God speaking with direct agency. I will multiply your pain and childbearing, but that's not the, that's not exclusively the tone of what or how God is speaking. This is like God saying, because of what you have done, you cannot be inside next to the fireplace. I'm going to put you outside. But on the way out, he gives you this really nice down jacket to cover you. You're not put out there hopelessly. No, you're not next to the fireplace. But he didn't just throw you out there to, to suffer and die. Yes, there are consequences out there. You will die ultimately in the cold. But God already provides in some way for uh, the provision outside. Is that fair? What's well, funny that you say that because while you were talking about how this is, this is punishment, but he's not like angry punishment. It reminds me of how I deal with the dog I have at my house. Cause you know, she'll get up on the counter and she'll eat something that's not good for her. And I'm not angry at her. I just don't want her to eat that. So what I do is I send her outside but it's not like I just kick her out of the house, right? She goes into a fenced-in backyard where nothing can get to her, and there's a dog door that she can get back in when it comes time. So it's not like I just abandoned her, right? You know, I provided for her, but she's still getting that punishment out there. Well, and we do know, without getting too far ahead of ourselves, that the grand story of Scripture will be God providing a means by which we get to go back into the garden, right? Um, uh, and well, you know, like we said, we see the proto evangelium, uh, in today's passage, uh, the enmity between, uh, the offspring of, uh, of the woman, and the offspring of the serpent. Uh, one, one day God will send the one who will finally and ultimately crush the head of the serpent, Jesus Christ, uh, who takes upon the sins of the world, past, present, and future, um, so that we may be deemed righteous and be, I, I love the language of Galatians three, for as many of you have been baptized into Christ, have been 
clothed with him, paralambano in Greek, wrapped up in as a garment. Uh, we, we know that that's where it's going. But again, even in real time, I was talking to my dad the other day, not even about this. Um, and we were just talking about disciplining our children. Um, and I say this because the two primary metaphors for God in Scripture are a parental uh, metaphor, right? And that of a spouse. Um, uh, so let's say parental for a second. Disciplining your children. We don't discipline our children because we hate them. We discipline them because we love them. He told me of a friend of his when he was in seminary whose child kept trying to put its hand on the stovetop because it saw the fire, you know, the heated element. And uh, he yelled at the kid, don't do that. Uh, and a, a, a mutual friend was present and said, man, you talk to your kids so harsh. And just a few minutes later, they were preoccupied doing something else. And that child went back to the stovetop and put his hand on there. And man, he had a ring mark on his hand. And he was just screaming in pain. And it helped cement for that friend. However, he responded to his child in discipline caused far more, caused far less pain than leaving the child to act on its own and just reap the consequences thereof. God responds to sin in his people because he loves us, not because he ceases to love us. Yes. Mm. Also, just from being a pastor, when I'm talking with people who've grown up in church and religion, frankly, this is something that they struggle with is the tone. I, I cannot tell you the number of believers that I've had conversations with through the years that believe God is angry with them. He's disgusted with them. He uh, is perpetually ticked off because of what they have done. Uh, so taking and putting together what we've just talked about, it would be a mistake to say that nothing can make God angry. Because we see in the scripture, God does get angry. But his anger is rooted in this compassionate relationship that he has with us. He, he truly does love us. And don't miss what we said at the beginning of this podcast. We get six, excuse me, 4,000 years into narrative history before we even read about God's anger, not that God did not get angry before, but just think about that. 4,000 years, the longest lifespan in the Bible was Methuselah at 969. 4,000 years before it talks about God's anger. You know what? It makes me think of another story out of the New Testament because of how we all hear God in our head and what does he sound like to us? Is he is he angry? Is he compassionate? You know, is he patient and understanding? Is you know, um, you know, is he annoyed and frustrated? All those things. It reminds me of the story of the prodigal son. The three characters you've got: the prodigal who leaves home and then ultimately comes back when he comes to his senses. You have the father who allows the prodigal to leave and then receives and runs to get the son when he comes home. And then you have the older brother who is frustrated that the father has celebrated the return of the prodigal. And what's interesting to me, of all three of those characters, all three of them take the sin seriously. At first, the prodigal takes the sin seriously when he comes to his senses. Of course, he didn't at the beginning. But when he comes to his senses, he realizes what he's done 
realizes what he has done, and he goes back home. Uh, number two, the father. I mean, he took it serious enough that he, he allowed his son to leave. Um, and the older brother. The older brother knows exactly what the younger brother has done. But what's interesting, even though all three characters take the sin seriously, only one of them gets angry. And it's not the father. It's rather the older brother. And that says so much. Because he's the anti-gospel character. He's the <laughs> anti-gospel character. And that wow. says so much to us about our application of what we think God sounds like and who he is as opposed to who God really is. Like, for instance, I, one more thing. Like, when I was a younger pastor, like, I I felt like when I started preaching, like, man, I, I want to see results, and I want people to get right. I want them to know how serious their sin is. And all those things are good. It's kind of like very John the Baptist. Even now the axe is laid at the tree. <laughs> you know, who shall deliver you from the, the coming wrath? But you know what's interesting? John I was waiting for, I was I was waiting for you to start saying I surrender all. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know what's interesting? The exact excuse me. The exact representation of the Father, this Hebrews 1, the apagasma, is not John the Baptist. It's Jesus Christ. It's Jesus. And did Jesus get angry? Yeah, there's a few times. But he he flipped tables a couple yeah, times. Yeah, he flipped tables a few times, but is it fair to say Man, that Jesus, he's such an angry person. Even people you know, who don't believe the Bible know Jesus in his narrative story is not an angry person. And Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. Yeah, Jesus is God's ultimate response to sin. How 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 does God feel about sin? Jesus. Mm. <laughs> um, you know, it reminds me, uh, again, God warned them. Uh, warned Adam, uh, we emphasized this last week, he warned Adam before sin was even on the picture, this will be the consequence. It doesn't say the only consequence, but he says this will be the consequence of if you eat from the tree you're not supposed to eat from, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, he says, dying you will begin to die. And so it's almost surprising the way that we read God's tone in Genesis 3 that God doesn't show up and kill them. Uh, in fact, he, death is introduced. We talked about that last week. But neither of them die right there on the spot in the garden. Adam lives for 900 years, right? Right. Um, what's interesting is neither of them die in the place the sin was committed. Neither of them die in the garden. And we talked about this and consciously edited it out of last week's episode. Flip over to the New Testament, John 19, 41 and 42 talking about the death of Jesus. Uh, right after the crucifixion, right after they pierce his side and blood like water flows, the aftermath, it says in verse 41 and 42, now in the place where he was crucified, surprise, surprise, there was a garden. Yeah. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, there they laid Je they laid Jesus there. Uh, Jesus uh, <laughs> Jesus is put uh, is the death uh, in the garden that allows us back in. Uh, Jesus Jesus is the dead body that gets put in the garden so that we can come back into the garden and have uh, 
eternal life. That's ultimately how God responds to sin. Again, there's consequence for all the characters in this story. There's consequence for the serpent, there's consequence for the woman, there's consequence for the man. But there is no follow-up for the serpent. There is a compassionate follow-up for the man and the woman. That God gives them a much more substantial covering than they could make for themselves. One that implies sacrifice. God gives them something that they could not give themselves. That's, I think that's how we see God. And maybe if we see that, we'll, we'll hear him a little bit differently when we read this passage. That's a great word. And now that we've kind of laid the groundwork here, we've talked about, you know, reading this passage with, you know, new eyes and not reading it so much as, you know, an angry God coming down and lambasting Adam and Eve. Next week, we'll talk a little bit about what some of these things mean, the curses and the consequences. So we invite you to join us next week where we talk about that stuff. And like we always say, it's, it's not less, it's more than what you think. You guys have a great week. We'll see you next week. Later. Shalom. All right, I'm, I'm stopping. I'm locking that in.